Welcome back to the ResusX podcast, your free open access medical education podcast dedicated to resuscitation and critical care. This week, we're focusing on chest pain in pregnancy. Chest pain in pregnancy can be nothing, or it could be something deadly. It could be spontaneous coronary artery dissection. It could be aortic dissection. It could be pulmonary embolism. And lucky for us, we have Dr. Tarlin Hadaiti, who's going to be breaking this all down. If you've attended Resusex before, you know just what a great educator she is. She's gonna be talking about the patients who should raise alarms for you. She's gonna talk about the workup and she's gonna talk about the outcomes for these patients. So this is a podcast you wanna to listen to all the way through. And speaking of sick and critically ill patients, we are about to announce the dates for our Resus X Revive conference. That is our cardiac arrest specific conference that's going to be happening in July. We have dates, but we are going to be planning a launch for this and all the details you need to know soon. So stay tuned. And if you're not already a member of our mailing list and newsletter, our educational newsletter, you want to sign up for that as well. Link is in the show notes. Click on it, sign up. Every week you'll receive our newsletter, which is chock full of free open access education that you can access. All right, let's get right to it and let's learn from Dr. Tarlin Hadaiti. Thanks, Haney. Let's dive into chest pain in the pregnant patient. Now, this is a real case that we had at Cook County Hospital and it happened within the last six months. So it's very fresh for me and in my mind. The 45-year-old woman coming in she had a history of hypertension, hypertension in pregnancy. So not previously, but she was experiencing some hypertension during the pregnancy. And she was having about a day of chest tightness. She said it was worse with deep inspiration or with coughing. And she was experiencing a little bit of dyspnea with it as well. She didn't have any leg swelling, no leg asymmetry, no leg pain. She wasn't diaphoretic. There was no nausea. There was no vomiting. But I basically got a relatively healthy, youngish person in front of me who happens to be pregnant. And she was in her third trimester at that point, coming in complaining of chest pain. And so the resident and I began a typical chest pain workup. Now, we tend to see these patients in our emergency department. We do have an OB floor that takes and triages the OB complaints, but anything that is non-OB ends up in our emergency department. So this was her initial EKG. And what I saw here didn't impress me that much. So I see basically a normal sinus rhythm. I saw some Q waves in those inferior leads, so two and three and three and AVF in particular. And I'm seeing a little bit of poor R wave progression anteriorly. So a few things that I'm filing away in the back of my mind, but nothing that jumped out. And certainly it's not an ST elevation, am I here? So we went ahead and sent off the troponins, ordered a chest x-ray, and went about our business seeing other patients. And then we got a call from the lab. And we had this positive troponin reported us to about that patient. We actually had to double check and say, wait, which patient? Which one are you talking about? And yeah, it was our pregnant chest pain patient. And her troponin was 0.666666. And if that doesn't scare you, if that doesn't tell you that there's something bad happening with this patient, you're not going to get a bigger red flag. And so we had to regroup and scratch our heads and say, is this really happening? Is this patient actually having an infarct, this relatively young, otherwise healthy patient having an infarct? We had to go back and really think about what could be going on here. Now, it's weird to think of acute MI happening in a population of people that's typically considered low risk for atherosclerosis or low risk 
for coronary artery disease. These are young women without a lot of comorbidities for atherosclerosis. But the risk of acute MI is higher in pregnancy, so three to four times higher than in the non-pregnant state. And of all the MIs that can happen either during pregnancy or in that postpartum window, 37% are going to be while the patient is pregnant. So that's our patient right now. And coronary artery disease or atherosclerosis is going to be responsible for a little less than 50% of acute MI in pregnancy. And why do we care about this? So why is this important? 37% of maternal mortality for acute MI happens in pregnancy. So not in that postpartum window, but during that pregnancy. What are our risk factors that we need to be aware of in our patients who come in complaining of chest pain so that we can correctly screen them for acute MI? So known coronary artery disease is obviously going to be a risk factor. So if you bring that into your pregnancy, you're going to carry that risk factor throughout your pregnancy. And that is predictive potentially of an acute MI during your pregnancy. Hypertension in pregnancy. Now we know hypertension in general is a risk factor for atherosclerosis and coronary artery disease, but even hypertension in pregnancy can be a risk factor for acute MI. Advanced maternal age becomes a risk factor for acute MI in pregnancy. So age over 40 or those geriatric pregnancies, which I absolutely, I hate that term, becomes a risk factor for acute MI in pregnancy. Black race is a risk factor for acute MI in pregnancy, and that may actually be related to issues with access to care either before the pregnancy or during the pregnancy. And then lastly, obesity, which we know is also a risk factor even in the non-pregnant patient. Now, if less than 50% of acute MI in pregnancy is due to atherosclerosis, and I gave you this data earlier, then what is causing acute MI the rest of the time? So 25 to 50% of acute MI is due to spontaneous coronary artery dissection. So in the pregnant patient, you have to consider this diagnosis pretty high on your differentials. Now, these numbers are all over the place, and I know 25 to 50% is a very wide gap, but that's what's available in the data. This is typically going to happen in the third or fourth trimester. And I know what you're thinking, the heck is the fourth trimester? We're talking about the postpartum period. So in those three months immediately after the patient has delivered. And those are the highest risk periods for the pregnant patient. Pregnancy-associated spontaneous coronary artery disease results in a more severe form of spontaneous coronary artery disease, but we aren't exactly sure why. Now. Is this MI due to coronary artery disease or is it due to SCAD? So I've got the patient in front of me. How am I going to be able to differentiate? Is this atherosclerosis or is this spontaneous coronary artery dissection? And this becomes a little bit challenging. Both are going to have abnormal EKGs potentially, and they're both going to have positive troponins. The patients are going to present with chest pain or dyspnea. And so there may not be much in the history that's going to help us differentiate between the two. Very challenging. This diagnosis is going to be made in the cast. But considering the possibility of spontaneous coronary artery disease is important, and that's why we're even talking about it. Because if we go in thinking this is atherosclerosis and we go down the management pathway that we normally do for atherosclerosis, it could be potentially dangerous 
for the patient who's actually having SCAD. Specifically, I'm talking about anticoagulation. So you may end up propagating that coronary dissection by starting that anticoagulation in the emergency department. So even knowing that SCAD is a risk factor and that it could be potentially what's behind this acute MI will hopefully have you take a step back and have a conversation with the interventionalist or with the cardiologist before you initiate that therapy. Now, what is therapy? So we know aspirin is fine and it's safe. We actually use this for patients who are preeclamptic or eclamptic. Beta blockers are also the mainstay of therapy in patients who have SCAD. So we're just trying to take away all that stress on the vessel wall. It tends to be a fairly conservative strategy and conservative management for these patients. So most of them are going to go to the cath lab and they're going to get their angio, but they're not going to get an intervention. They're not going to get PCI. So you want to be careful, again, starting that anticoagulation for these patients in advance of them going to the cath lab. That can get started up in the lab. Who's going to get PCI? So patients who are having ongoing ischemia, whether it's rising troponins, whether it's ongoing chest pain, whether it's ECG-demonstrated ischemia. Patients who are in cardiogenic shock and are requiring support are going to get an intervention. So they're probably going to end up getting PCI. Patients who are having sustained dysrhythmias, specifically VTAC or VFib, are going to get PCI. And then left main coronary artery dissection is intervened upon. So those are really the criteria for getting PCI. But again, this diagnosis is going to be made in the cath lab. So have that conversation with your cardiologist and arrange either for transfer if you don't have a cath lab in your particular hospital or talk to them and figure out what their strategy is going to be for management. Now, besides acute MI and SCAD, we have a couple of other differentials that we absolutely must consider in these patients who are coming in with chest pain and are pregnant. And PE is definitely at the top of our differentials. In fact, the risk for venous thromboembolic disease is four to five times higher in pregnancy in a pregnant patient than in those non-pregnant patients. As that growing uterus pushes on that IVC, there's increased stasis in the pelvis, in those lower extremities, and we're hitting like all of Virchow's triad here. And so you have an increased risk of developing DVT, whether it's in the lower extremities or in the pelvic veins, and then eventually developing a PE. Now, how can we really identify this in a pregnant patient? This is so challenging. A lot of times, a lot of women come in and they have pedal edema already. They already have a little bit of shortness of breath as that gravid uterus pushes up into the thorax. And some may even be a little tachycardic at baseline when they come in. And so some of the things we use to help us risk stratify or decide what's the likelihood of PE becomes a little bit challenging in the pregnant patient. 40% of PEs in pregnancy are going to occur in the antepartum period. And then the other 60% is going to be in that immediate postpartum period. So my patient who's now in front of me complaining of chest pain and shortness of breath and has that little bumped troponin, she is in this 40% group who could potentially be having a PE during their pregnancy. And what risk stratification tools can I use? So I've got all these eggs in my basket. What can I use to help me differentiate? We love PERC. We love Wells. We use these 
guidelines all the time to help us risk stratify other patients. Can I apply these to my pregnant patient? And unfortunately, we cannot. So in all the studies looking at PERG, looking at Wells, pregnant women were excluded from those criteria. So it hasn't been studied in this patient population. Now, what about D-dimer? I still have D-dimer and I know what you're thinking. Can I use D-dimer in my pregnant patient? Unfortunately, the problem with D-dimer is it's already elevated in pregnancy. And so when you send it and you get that positive result, do you know what to do with it? Now you do. Now we've got the year's algorithm in pregnancy. And this has really been amazing and kind of practice changing for us in the emergency department. This was developed, tested, validated in the pregnant population. It was a multi-center international study. They did it across like almost 20 hospitals looking at women over the age of 18. So adult women who've been referred to a hospital for a concern of pulmonary embolism and all the patients were pregnant. And what they did in the year's algorithm in pregnancy is they took the three clinical criteria of the Wells score for PE that are most predictive in the Wells criteria for PE, and they applied it and used it here in the year's algorithm. And then they added one lab value, which is our D-dimer, to determine the need for CTPE. What they were really looking to find out is if we follow these patients that we've essentially ruled out using these, this year's algorithm, we follow them out for three months, how many of them are going to have a DVT or a PE three months later? So basically, which ones could we have potentially missed or who's going to go on to develop one? And the results were one patient. One patient ended up having a symptomatic popliteal DVT diagnosed on day 90. So let's talk a little bit about this and how we can apply the year's algorithm. So basically, if you start out at the top of that algorithm and you have a patient who's got any signs and symptoms of a DVT, you're going to go ahead and get your DVT ultrasound. If there's a DVT present, you're done. Treat the DVT. If the DVT is absent, then you're going to order your D-dimer. If your D-dimer falls below 0.5 milligrams per liter, then you are essentially done. So if it's less than 0.5 and it's negative, then you're done. You don't need to necessarily pursue any more of a study. If it doesn't, so it's higher than that, now you need to go on down the pathway and you're going to have to order that CTPA. Now, let's say they don't have any signs or symptoms of a DBT. So you're going to go down your algorithm and you're going to get that D-dimer. And now you're going to apply those years criteria, the two further criteria that's in this algorithm. One, is there hemoptysis? And two, is PE the most likely diagnosis or equally likely for your specific patient? If the answer to those two questions is no, the patient doesn't have hemoptysis and PE is not the most likely diagnosis, then you're going to send the dimer. You're going to look at your dimer. If your dimer is under 1.0, so under 1,000 essentially, then you're done with your workup and you don't need to go ahead and order that CT. If it is not, so it's above the 1.0, then you're going to have to pursue that CTPE. If you then apply those two criteria and one of them is positive, you have to then use a lower threshold for your dimer. So now we're talking about 0.5. So if the dimer is less than 0.5, you're done with your workup. If it's greater than 0.5, you're going to be getting that CTPA. Okay. 
So PE was actually confirmed in 16 patients. None of them had DVT. One PE didn't meet any of the year's criteria, but fortunately had an elevated dimer, and we were able to catch that patient in this particular algorithm and in this study. So the long and short of it, CTPE was safely avoided in 39% of patients. And so you've got a high-risk group that's coming in. These are patients who we thought had PE, came and were sent to the emergency department to have it ruled out, applied the algorithm, and we were able to dodge CTPE and radiation in up to 40% of patients, like almost 40% of patients. That's pretty amazing. Now, the next question is, do I have to get a CT? Can I get a VQ scan if I have to image the patient? Either one is fine. So in terms of diagnostic capabilities, they're both equally fine. The problem with VQ scan is oftentimes it's unavailable at the times we want it, right? So your nuclear medicine lab has to be open. And I know ours tends to be closed in the evening and at night. So CT is going to be the easiest modality for me to obtain. There is a lower radiation dose associated with VQ scan to mom and to the fetus compared to CTPA. It's relatively low in general, but VQ does have a slightly lower radiation dose. And in terms of just radiation, whether it's CT or VQ, both are well below the 50 milligray threshold that's been associated with fetal abnormalities. So if you're worried about PE, get that CT and don't worry about it. All right. What's the treatment in these patients that let's say you've now diagnosed PE? How are you going to approach this patient? It's either going to be unfractionated heparin or it's going to be low molecular weight heparin. Unfractionated heparin, we like to use in those venous, acute venous thromboembolic disease phenomena where there's a large clot burden. If the patient is hemodynamically unstable or if surgery or delivery is anticipated very quickly. So that's really otherwise you're going to be using low molecular weight heparin in your stable patients who aren't going to be operated on or delivering anytime soon. In the setting of a massive PE, or let's say it's a cardiac arrest situation, you can absolutely go ahead and use thrombolysis. No other anticoagulation is used in pregnant patients. So you're really stuck with these two agents, unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin. Now let's tackle the last bad, scary diagnosis when you have a patient who's got chest pain and is pregnant. So there's an international registry of aortic dissection. And everybody inputs their data from around the world into this registry. And I can tell you that the risk of aortic dissection in pregnancy is exceptionally low. International registry, there is a whopping total of 29 cases of pregnancy-related aortic dissection. And that represents 0.3% of all aortic dissection. And if you look just amongst women, it represents 1% of aortic dissection. So aortic dissection in pregnancy very rare. So that's like an understatement. Now, before you text me or email me and say that you had a case, let's talk about what we need to keep on our radar when it comes specifically to aortic dissection. So risk factors, when you look at the international registry, it's really patients who have some sort of aortopathy. So whether they have Marfan, so 65% of patients who had an aortic dissection had Marfan, Lois Dietz, syndrome, 10% of patients, a bicuspid valve, 10% of patients, some sort of family history of aortic disease, another 10%. So you can see that really you have to have some sort of typically underlying aortic 
issue that's going to then cause this dissection. Here's the problem. So unfortunately, that aortopathy is not recognized often enough. So most of, not most of the time, but almost 50% of the time, the aortopathy wasn't recognized until after the dissection happened. So they went back and looked and they're like, oh yeah, you've had this problem for a while, but the patient certainly didn't know it. And so this is where we have to keep this on our radar and make sure that we are catching this and imaging adequately enough. The good news is of all the women that got hospitalized with their dissection, 97% survived to discharge. So keeping it on our radar and making sure that we're looking at all the normal risk factors that patients have for dissection, even in the non-pregnant state. But just in the back of your mind, make sure you're asking those questions about those possible aortopathies. So I hope I've given you a little bit of food for thought. The good news is that the vast majority of chest pain in the ED is not catastrophic, whether it's a pregnant or not pregnant patient. Our job is to catch that needle in the haystack, right? It's to catch those really catastrophic cases. So consider acute MI, consider STAD, keep PE on your radar, and now you've got the years algorithm in pregnancy to help you. And then dissection, though rare, just keep it in the back of your mind and make sure that if this patient weren't pregnant, would I be concerned about dissection and then pursue it as you need to. And hopefully we're doing our part to decrease that maternal mortality. Thanks. 